It is with great pride and pleasure that uh, on behalf of all of the patrons of the Motorsport 101 podcast, I present to you the grand reopening of the Church of Dre. Does anyone, does anyone smell kerosene? Ryan King, I would like for you to cut the ceremonial ribbon and reopen the church. Uh, um, RJ, RJ, you might want to turn around. I I think I cut an electrical cable. Wait, what? Oh no! Trey's gonna be pissed at us. Ah oh, shit! Ah oh, shit! Ah oh, shit! Welcome back to Motorsport 101. Despite all of these funds being raised on behalf of the Church of Dre, it's it's burned down. It I, I don't know what so to say. Proud. It stood it's so been, tall for all of one week, and now it's been burned down again. It was probably the most lively thing that happened over the Russian Grand Prix weekend. That an unnecessary helmet design drama. Filling in for your friendly neighborhood, Andre Harrison. We are R.J. O'Connell. Ryan King and Cam Buckley, welcome back to episode 215 of the Motorsport 101 podcast. Uh, suffice to say, we'll be getting into a lot of stuff about a, a Russian Grand Prix weekend that was only memorable because uh, one team completely bungled their strategy with their own internal politics. But it wasn't all uneventful because the support card gave us the crowning of not one, but two brand new champions of Formula 2 and Formula 3. We'll talk about that, of course. Um, and, of course, we'll talk about World Superbikes at Circuit Manicourt in France. With Topak Razgadioglu winning the 800th World Superbike race. And Jonathan Ray making history with his fifth Superbike World Championship. Plus a catch-up on all the latest news that you may have missed. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you to all of our patrons who are listening live as this show is being recorded. Hello, Rezzy. Hello, Tony. Hello, Vincent. And hello, Josette. And hello as well to uh, to friend of the show, Louis Sudeby, who's listening in as well. <sighs> I can't believe we just let it burn like that. Trey's going to be up so upset when he gets back. Oh, Lord. Maybe things will improve by Japan. We can rebuild it by Japan, guys. If you if you give us enough funds, we can not only rebuild the church, but we can also give the church a private jet. <laughs> That's tats deductible, by the way. Uh, don't worry, folks. Um, Dre is tending to a is tending to some work stuff. He'll be back uh, after next week's show, um, but you will still be able to hear Dre because. Uh, We'll start off a Russian Grand Prix segment by hearing from him in his latest episode of Dre Vlogs, which you can also watch on YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. We are also on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101. If you wish to follow us personally, you can at Harrison101HD, at Ryan Eric King, that's with two Ks, at RJ O'Connell, that's with two N's and two L's, and at CBuckley917, that's without any vowels. 
If you wish to back us financially, you can at patreon.com forward slash motorsport101 and of course motorsport101.com for your hub for all things this podcast, rent material, videos, the whole nine yards. We've got it all at motorsport101.com. All right, so the Russian Grand Prix happened. We were all looking forward to just a nice, relaxing weekend. We don't have to worry about getting all hyped up and having to calm down after a very exciting Grand Prix. As it turns out, that was mostly the case. After this quick musical interlude, we'll be back to talk about the Russian Grand Prix. Here we are, and before we get started with our reactions, again, uh, your friendly neighborhood Andre Harrison put up a new vlog uh, talking about the Russian Grand Prix weekend, and specifically about the big story after the race, Ferrari's tactical mismanagement of their two drivers, Sebastian Vettel and Charles Leclerc, which turned a potential 1-2 finish into just one car just getting onto the podium after Sebastian Vettel failed to finish with an MGUK failure. We're going to play the audio from the latest episode of Dre Vlogs, which of course you can listen to that and watch all of our videos at youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101. Here is Dre on the Russia, on the Russian Grand Prix. The Russian Grand Prix just happened and it was a shit race. I'm not even going to deny it to you folks. It was a terrible Grand Prix. But even the terrible Grand Prix sometimes have something going for them that's worth watching. And this was another example of that. And unfortunately, it was Ferrari basically self-destructing on itself again. Um, and it cost them at least a race victory, maybe even a 1-2 finish as a result of their actions. But let's talk a little bit about what happened in case you missed it. Now... Charles Leclerc qualifies on pole position. His teammate qualifies third. Charles Leclerc's on pole. Sebastian Vettel's third. There was clearly some sort of pre-arranged agreement regarding the race start. There was discussion that they were going to let... They were going to use Charles Leclerc as bait, basically, to try and get Sebastian past Lewis Hamilton, who was starting second on the line. Now, there is an argument you can make... In Sochi, you're actually maybe a little bit better off starting third compared to starting first because Sochi has the longest run down to turn one. I think it's almost a kilometre long. Um, and Vettel got such a good start off the line going into turn one and turn two that he was able to lead by the time we got through sector one of the track. Um... It, it it didn't help that both Ferrari started on the soft compound tyre, whereas Lewis Hamilton started on the medium compound tyre, and you lose six or seven metres of grip off the off the line in terms of pure traction in the difference in tyre compound. So Vettel was easily able to, to roll past Hamilton on the start line and had such a good run into turn one, he was able to take the lead. But as early as lap two, we were getting radio messages from the team saying, oh... We've got to think about swapping these guys. We'll swap them later on in the race. 
Leclerc was told on the radio, we're going to swap you guys later. Um, they sent it to Sebastian. Sebastian, you know, was like, let him by. And then Vettel was like, well, I would have gotten him anyway. And then he was told again later on in the race, you know, swap him around. Charles is 1.4 behind. And he goes, and he needs to catch up, you know. And Vettel basically ignored the team order. And he actually pulled away from Charles Leclerc in the first half of the race. He was about four, four and a half seconds in front by the first round of pit stops. They boxed Vettel first. They boxed Charles Leclerc from second place first. They put him on the undercut. But they keep Sebastian Vettel out two or three laps, probably too long. Leclerc on fresher rubber, who was then allowed to push, overtakes Vettel in the pit stops. And it brings Hamilton into play, who started on the medium compound tyre. And he was told, target plus 15. So they were going to go long on the medium tyre for their first stint before switching later onto the soft compound tyre to try and make up the lost ground. It doesn't really matter in the end because Vettel's car dies. Um, An MGU, I think it was an MGUK or H failure. I'm not 100% sure. I'm sure someone in the comments will correct me as always. I think it was an MGUH. It failed. Vettel's car is retired. There's a virtual safety car. Hamilton and Bottas were able to pit under virtual safety car. They didn't lose anywhere near as much time. So they were able to come out of the pits first and second by the time it all shook out. Leclerc was unable to pass Valtteri Bottas on track. Hamilton takes off and wins his 82nd career Grand Prix and puts another nail in the title coffin. Ferrari go from being from first and second to basically having one car die and another finish third. It wasn't a good look. Ferrari had egg on their faces. There is no other way of potentially describing this situation. And... I watched it as a fan, you know. I watched that race sitting down and I was just utterly befuddled and confused as to what Ferrari were doing. They were they were pissing about with politics and it's cost them very dearly here because I think I think a one two finish was on. I really do. I think Ferrari's it's a shame because that's one of the things that they can take away from this race is that Ferrari's race pace was genuinely very good. I don't know how much Vettel was pushing his power unit to try and break out that gap, but it was working. He was the fastest man on track comfortably in the first half of that race. Leclerc, you know, was complaining about, you know, I respected this, I respected that, you know, why haven't you put me out in front was basically what he was trying to say. And by the time he did it, it didn't matter because Vettel's car dying had a massive change on the race. I sit back and I think, was this even necessary? Like, why would you have a pre-arranged plan to determine which of you... Like, you're basically saying, okay, we're going to deliberately compromise Charles Leclerc off the line. We're going to leave him out like a dangling carrot for Sebastian to pass Lewis. But whatever you do, don't make him pass for the lead. Even though we saw at this very Grand Prix in 2016, Valtteri Bottas did the exact same thing. Started third... Oh, you know, like I, said, I think it was actually 2017, correct me if I'm wrong, but he started third and was in the lead by turn one, and I believe he would go on and that was his first race win. Um, so, you look at the situation and you go, you're better off starting third. If you're a team that's done its homework, you would know starting third is arguably the best place you can start in Sochi, because you are vulnerable off the start line if you're starting from pole. 
and even more from a bigger picture standpoint, Ferrari have nothing to play for in this championship. Path to Singapore, look in the both drivers' championship standings. Lewis Hamilton had a 96-point advantage on Charles Leclerc, the highest score in Ferrari in third. Which would mean that if Charles Leclerc won every single round, including every fastest lap bonus point between now and the end of the season, Hamilton could follow in home finishing in fourth, I think even fifth, every round between now and the end of the year. Ferrari are also 131 points behind in the Constructors' Championships. And swapping one and two around doesn't matter when you're a team because it doesn't change the number of points you're making. There was no reason for you to... like. There was not an undercut threat from Hamilton during this race. The threat from Hamilton would have come in the last 30% of the race, maybe, when they swapped tyres around. Hamilton wasn't going to be an undercut threat. So there was no reason to keep Sebastian out as long as he did when he started losing time, when his rears, his rear soft tyre started to go. And from a team standpoint, you effectively have nothing to play for. Mercs are not going to lose 130 points in the next six or seven races. In the driver's standpoint, they're six points between your two drivers and you're 90 plus behind Lewis Hamilton. You're probably not winning the driver's championship either. You have nothing to play for. So why do you insist on having team orders? And it's not the first time they've had this attitude or mentality either. We've seen it at the start of the season. In Australia, Leclerc wasn't allowed to pass a slower Sebastian who was compromised on strategy. In, in places like China and I believe Spain as well, they were too slow in, sw in swapping their cars around and it cost them bucket loads of time taking themselves out of any threat to challenge for the victory. And let's not forget one round ago in Singapore. And this is where I get more cynical about this. I think Ferrari lucked in and underestimated just how powerful the undercut actually was. Vettel made up four and a half seconds roughly on that undercut. I say four and a half because the undercut was about three seconds. Vettel's lap was about 3.9 seconds faster and he lost 0.6 in the pit stop because his pit stop was 0.6 slower than Leclerc. That was what enabled him to leapfrog Leclerc and Hamilton into the lead of that race, which he would actually go on to win. And Leclerc was clearly not happy about that Singapore race. He, yeah, he was given every tool in the book to try and chase Sebastian down, but the delta wasn't big enough between them to be able to make a feasible overtake. And it was the same story here in Sochi. You needed one and a half to 1.8 seconds a lap to make a pass, because the dirty air of Sochi and it's a poor racing track it doesn't allow you to get close enough to be able to pass under normal circumstances that's why Valtteri was able to hold off Charles after the safety car finished and they were all running on the same compound of tyre the difference in performance wasn't big enough to make it work you know having four 90 degree right handers before your circuit's only realistic passing opportunity isn't ideal for racing but hey that's a Herman Tilt problem it's why the cynical part of me believes this whole shenanigans in Sochi was a make-up call for Singapore. Leclerc qualified on pole, so he had the almost obligation to go on and win the race. Sebastian took advantage of a, good, of a very good start and a great situation to take the lead of the race. 
If you're a team, you're thinking, your boys are one and two. Why are you tampering with this? Let the second man win, you know? If that's how you perceive Sebastian Vettel in that team these days. And that's just the point. Ferrari had nothing to play for and their own in-house meddling potentially cost them a victory and maybe even a 1-2 finish. Who knows what happens if Hamilton gets the, gets the soft tyres in the end. But I, do, I would also make the argument the deltas were probably not big enough for him to make a difference. But Ferrari running the medium compound tyre and staying competitive with Ferrari on long runs was what able to give them the option to change strategy. It was a more flexible way of doing things, as, as James Allison said after the race. But that's just it with, with this team. They've mismanaged their drivers so many times this season. That we're claiming this is a new Ferrari. It's a hard habit to break when you've had 20-plus years, roughly, of one lead driver and one supporting driver. We've seen it since the days of Schumacher and Barrichello. We saw it with Schumacher and Massa. You know, when Kimi Raikkonen led the charge in 2007, and then their roles reversed when Massa became the lead threat in 2008 and 2009, before the accident he had. And in 2010, with Fernando Alonso, and Fernando is faster than you. And, you know, Raikkonen was kind of an accidental number two at Ferrari in this hybrid era because he was vastly inferior to the majority of the time to Fernando Alonso, the one year of hybrids he was with the team, and Sebastian Vettel when he took over in 2015. It kind of begs the question, can you have two number one drivers in a team? I don't think it works. In motorsport, I think there's too many egos. I think... Look, I'm not a fan of team orders as much as the next guy. We should have been jumping up and, re and down and having an orgy on the timeline when Sebastian Vettel broke a team order. It's not the first time he's done it. We went nuts over Multi-21 when that happened, and it was vastly blown out of proportion, but because we wanted, we wanted something to make Sebastian look like a villain, we made him Darth Vader, because Mark Webber was the victim of... Vettel going for the win, which is something that we as racing fans apparently are meant to love. I've said it before. We, we, were, hip, we were hypocrites over it. We hated team orders, but we also hated the guy that broke the rule. Kind of a weird mentality when you think about it. You know, we are firm believers. I think the majority of us on Twitter are firm believers that you let the drivers race, and then you settle it from there. And... It doesn't have that, and it doesn't work in F1 when you've got two guys who you can make a claim are number one top drivers, certainly in terms of talent. Sebastian Vettel and Charles Leclerc have been very similar this season in terms of pure performance, in terms of point scoring, and in terms of you know what matters, the championship. They're very, very evenly matched, and that was before this DNF that Vettel went through. Mercedes got away with it in the Hamilton and Rosberg era because they were so much faster than everybody else. They were winning anywhere from 12 to 18 races a season. It didn't matter um, that, that their threats are internal so much because, in the end, there was no one behind them that could put through a challenge. Not even close. Not until 2017. when And by that point, Rosberg had gone... Valtteri Bottas was brought in and this is why I say that Bottas has an important role as number two in that team because Bottas is, an, is a harmless 300 point scorer who can clean up after Hamilton when he doesn't have such a good day and he's not going to challenge for the championship 
He's the he was the perfect anti Rosberg sort of character that Mercedes needed. And that's his value now to that team. He's unproblematic while Hamilton can go off and win races and take opportunities where he can. Bottas is the cleanup man and it works perfectly. So why would they want to put Esteban Ocon in that car? There's no reason to replace any of them in that seat. It's just how it is. And I've seen it before in other forms of motorsport and other examples. Like I said, Merckx, they got away with it during the Rosberg era. You know, we've seen I've seen it in MotoGP as a bike fan. A lot of Yamaha's drama started when Valentino Rossi came back to the team after leaving Ducati and coming back. Lorenzo and Rossi took too many points off each other and it opened the door for Marc Marquez, who was in a team with Danny Pedrosa at the time. Pedrosa was still a very good rider, maybe into this final season last year. But he was never a consistent challenge for Marquez. And that's what made Honda great. Because, hey, it's a problem now. Because only one man can ride that bike to its maximum potential. But Marquez is so good that you don't have any internal team drama. Because that guy is so much better than the other guy. (laughs) And Pedrosa was perfect because he was a fantastic number two. He was a great developer of the bike and what it could do. And Marquez was good enough to be able to ride it to its maximum and win races. Pedrosa could clean up the mess in case Marquez had a bad day. Yamaha had two number ones who didn't get along and were both trying to steer the team in different directions. They took points off each other and it opened the door when it came to vulnerability and mistakes and dropping points to keep Marquez in contention and he would go off and win championships. Ducati tried the same thing because they believe that, hey, our bike is so good we don't need another challenger. So we so we, we can stack the deck. They've had guys like Nicky Hayden, Loris Caparossi, Andrea De Vizioso, Andrea Iannone, Jorge Lorenzo. And Lorenzo and Dovi had their own team drama before Lorenzo left the team last year. Mapping 8, anyone? It's the same deal as Multi-21. So I'm not sure that having two number one drivers works in a team. And if Ferrari want to prove that going forward, they need to manage their talent better. We didn't have this with Kimi Raikkonen, because Kimi Raikkonen, as much as he's not as talented maybe as Charles Leclerc now, he was unproblematic, he was willing to play the team game, and he and Vettel had a great relationship. The issue back then was the car. The car right now is actually very good at Ferrari right now, and has actually certainly at least closed the gap on Mercedes, and their upgrades have seemingly brought them back into contention as a number one car in the field going forward. The damage might be done for this year, but it is certainly a a good thought for 2020. But their drivers could soon be the problem. And that's going to be an issue going forward. I mean, it's a lot to unpack. Ferrari's mismanagement, their internal bickering, arguably cost them a one-two finish. It was normal service as usual. Lewis Hamilton wins from Valtteri Bottas. A perfect record for Mercedes at the Russian Grand Prix going back to before the first Great War with a bit of an 80-year gap. (laughs) With a bit of an 80-year gap, but who's counting? Um, So we've heard Dre's thoughts on it. Um, King, I want to get to you first. Um, what What do you make of all this? Oh, Lord. I mean... The... Kind of going back to the the start of the race, how Ferrari wanted to ensure that Vettel 
would get the slipstream because, you know, Leclerc being in pole position, they wanted to make sure that both their cars could run down to the first corner. Um, yeah, Vettel gets around Leclerc and then is pretty much in pretty much everyone at Ferrari's under the illusion that Vettel will have to surrender the position despite Vettel being fast around track. Yeah, and that was the wrench in the works in all of this. Right. Cam's been wanting to talk about this for a while now. Because Dre is not not here for the full (laughs) bloodletting. We've just heard him. Cam, this had you feeling a... a, a, This had you up in your feelings. My nickname in the Discord is Dre's Angry Substitute. What was it before then? (laughs) Fuck this fucking team. (laughs) And before that, it was the man literally too angry to die. <laughs> oh, my God. So the fundamental wrench in the works here is that at Russia, it is inherent, quote unquote, flaw that it's really best to start off of the front row because you can get a toe down into turn one. And it's mm-hmm. such a long run down into turn one that, as we saw in 2017, to Ferrari's disadvantage, the cars behind will get the toe and they will drag race you down to T1. Right. I'm almost expecting next year, if they have a Russian Grand Prix qualifying session for teams to just coast out of the final corner, so that way they could avoid getting pole position, but just try and qualify third. <clears throat> yeah. And, oh my god. So, Vettel qualifies third. He's sat right behind Charles, who's on the same tire as him, but he's also sat behind Lewis, who's on the medium tire. When Vettel gets off the line, he's immediately past Lewis right from the get-go. And the agreement was between the Ferraris that Leclerc would give him the slipstream to ensure that. Only Vettel got such a good toe that, as King says, passes Leclerc down into turn one. And by lap two, we got the team orders call. You need to let Charles by. And I have the radio transcript up here. Right, yeah. If you've missed the race, you, again, we don't like to exaggerate. You did not miss much. We were kind of expecting this to be a bit of a snoozer. And I think after this many exciting races in a row, didn't we all just need a, a nice rest? But I, I mm, it, it was boring from, you know an on-track entertainment standpoint, but it was exciting in that old F1, oh my god, this is a good storyline standpoint. Yeah. It gave yeah. you it gave you <clears throat> drama. It gave you a storyline to follow in the weeks and months to come because, you know, we've been talking for the last few weeks, ever since Charles won those first two races at Belgium and Italy. Um, there has been talk that now the hierarchy in Ferrari has changed. And obviously Vettel did a great deal to try and to... Prove that, hey, he is still the number one man at this team by winning at Singapore as decisively as he did. Exactly. And with Vettel in front, um, there was a safety car on lap one for an Mm -hmm. incident between, I think it was, Ricardo. This was the uh, Grosjean, the Grosjean-Ricardo incident. Took Ricardo out of the race and took Grosjean out as well. Yeah, Giovinazzi kind of forgot that, uh, he forgot that he left damage turned on in the settings. (laughs) Made it three wide. Bad things happened. Uh, Grosjean was put out of the race immediately. Ricardo then retired later with extensive damage to his car. But back to the story at hand. 
when the race goes back to green flag conditions, we then hear the radio call. Sebastian will let you by next lap. And all hell kind of no. broke loose from there. Vettel replies on the next lap, I would have got him anyways. Let's break away for another two laps. Let me know. Yeah. At that point, you have a decisive advantage. You're not, you don't have one driver that desperately needs to get as many points as they can to have any chance of catching them in the championship because spoilers, they're, they're likely not going to catch Lewis Hamilton either way. You at least want to think about maximizing what results you can. Of course. And really the only fight left for the Ferrari drivers is to beat Verstappen because they're not catching either Mercedes driver. That It's, it's ridiculous yeah. to think that they would. Lap 7. Let Charles by. Hamilton is three seconds behind Charles. Vettel says, tell him to close up. And then Vettel decide... See ya. And he just starts driving away to the tune of 0.3 to 0.4 of a second every lap. Yeah, he is cleanly the quickest driver out there. That is the benefit as well of the the clean air. He got the great start that he needed that he needed to pull away from the field. It's not that oh Vettel's only only strength is that he has dirty air behind him to help him out and pad his lead. No, Vettel was doing his part, and, and the circumstances helped out, out with that a bit. Vettel was doing his job, um, and they would have had a one-two finish on the table. Yeah. Come up to, what was it, I believe, lap 22? Oh, man. Oh, one, one lap off. And we hear over the radio, Vettel has about a four-and-a-half-second gap. He's continuing to gap Leclerc. They bring Leclerc in for new tires. And they leave Sebastian out for four laps on dying softs. Yeah, they're going to give Charles Leclerc the undercut. That is how they're going to pull off the uh, the position swap. But, of course, as Drea discussed, Mercedes were going to try and stretch those medium tires out as long as they possibly could. Target plus 15. They wanted to go as long as these mediums on this very not-abrasive Sochi Autodrome surface to try and maximize them so they can push harder on the soft tires. And because Ferrari bungled this up so badly, all it took was one more safety car intervention, and the race completely turns, and it's a Mercedes 1-2 all over again. Yes, and, um, oh, oh no, that's Sebastian stopping on track. Oh no. Which, out of anger, he just said, you know, just bring back the V12s. I, I think after he calmed down, he realizes that... Ferrari's record in the V12 era was not all that great. <coughs> love them semi-automatic semi gearboxes. They are the most reliable. Yeah. Love the fact that only one V12 power car won an F1 World Championship, and that was a 91. Honda, baby. It wasn't even Ferrari. God, I, I don't know what to make of all this. And I know I, a, a lot of people were, were wanting to point the blame solely at Charles Leclerc because he was the one having the moan on the radio. First of all, drivers have a moan on the radio all the time. It's fine. Second, if there was if you had like a prearranged agreement at work to do something and then they just went back on it, wouldn't you be a little bit ticked off as well, especially in a high stretch job like this? But I yeah, like, but at the same time, the circumstances had clearly changed. Yeah. Yes, and um I I'd like to say a bit from 
well-known sim racing boy, Stephen J. Bailey. Mm-hmm. If Vettel, Leclerc, Vettel and Leclerc and Ferrari agreed to a certain plan and Vettel blew off that plan, yeah, Vettel's a little bit of a dick doing that. If you're in Formula One, you're probably kind of a dick. It kind of just goes but, along with it. But that's the thing. Formula One fans, as, as Dre discussed, have very different and often hypocritical attitudes about team orders at times, depending on who is the benefactor and who is often perceived as the victim. See Malaysia 2013 for a perfect example of this. And, yeah. and earlier this season as well, when people were angry that Ferrari was holding Charles behind Seb early on in the season. That they were holding Charles back, as a matter of fact. Um it's a, it's a very good point because uh, how did how did Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost's relationship and McLaren Honda deteriorate again? Uh, by Senna <laughs> not not meeting his lap one agreements. Yeah, because going back to the time before Senna had got there, Alain Prost and his teammates at McLaren always had an agreement that whoever led in a lap one would have the preferred strategy and pre- preferred to go on to win the race. Senna, we said fuck that. Nah. It's it's infuriating from the perspective of what this of What this band. fundamentally stems from is that Ferrari built a strategy around what ended up being the slower car. And then refused to adapt their strategy to cope. And this left them vulnerable, of course, to Mercedes, who is the most strategically savvy team on the grid. They have proven time and time again, you give them an inch, they will take the whole fucking mile. Yeah. And King is, if if there's one thing about what makes Ferrari's strategy so suspect at times when they really get it wrong, is it the fact that they're inflexible when things go very bad? Yes, yes. Because they, I don't want to say they, it, it, it's almost as if they head into the race with a set idea of how the race is going to play out. And uh, when things don't play out exactly to plan, they pretty much implode. Exactly. And to try and stick to a plan regardless of race situation, how many times has that cost them surefire wins? Right. Constantly. 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 And Ferrari Fer- was time. so set on sticking to that plan that they jeopardized their positions they had in the race. Mercedes, as Dre said in his video, was not an undercut threat because they were going long. And they still had good pace on the soft tires. They did not need to pit Leclerc and leave themselves vulnerable to a VSC. All of this stems, and it's not so much of favoring one driver or the other, it's the very mentality that you'd be so devoted to a plan that you would compromise your race this badly. That's, yeah, that's the thing. It's less about whether or not you feel that Ferrari are trying to favor one driver or the other, whether they want to back Vettel, the established champion, because they always want to go for their experienced champion, or whether Ferrari just want to throw all their eggs into the Golden Boys' uh, basket. It's more the fact that strategically they got this wrong if they if they had prioritized the slower car and the slower car just happened to be Vettel, we would be upset about it too <laughs> exactly if the roles were reversed it would be exactly the same deal right and and as it stands 
this I think this is unprecedented in modern F1 in terms of just blowing a race result by favoring the slower car. The last time I can think of something like this happening was Williams in 2015 at Britain where they refused to let Bottas pass Felipe Massa when he clearly had more pace. Now, other things happened down the line that would have cost them the win regardless. Yeah, Williams and, in the rain in 2015. And ultimately, uh, Vettel's um, engine failure did cost him any shot of getting on any places at the podium. Yes, but if that engine failure happens and Leclerc is still out front because they don't do a ridiculously then they early still have tr- Then they still have 25 points in the bag. Exactly. Well, yeah, they they didn't know that Vettel's, you know, MGUK was going to fail. Of course, they couldn't have known. But at the same time, they left themselves vulnerable to it in the first place when they didn't need to. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's dumb to try and pin the blame on uh, either one driver, whether that's Leclerc for having a moan on the radio or Vettel for trying to break team orders and be insubordinate. Because the fault's not with either one of them, more so than it is the team being too rigid and two stunt in their own ways that they've cost themselves points when they really, they already don't have a fighting shot at the championship. I mean, it's, it's baffling to say the least. There is in the yeah, context part of, of me, how Ferrari season is gone. There is no excuse for them continuing to throw away results when this car is real now. They are but, quicker than Mercedes. Yeah, it's as good as it is in the video games. It's as good as we all thought it was going to be in preseason testing. God, yeah, remember preseason that, testing? Yeah, <laughs> those upgrades in Singapore that allowed them to be so good around there. I think the number is now they've brought themselves back to being within 0.02 of a percent to Mercedes in slow speed turns. Mm-hmm. And they are so quick in a straight line. And their car is so good in higher speed turns that yeah. they have turned the tables on Mercedes. They are quicker, and yet they continue, regardless of whether the car is slower or quicker, to throw away results. Whereas Mercedes, even when they have the wrong packages, Toto said, even if you don't have the right package, you can win if you get everything right. Yeah. and I flip they got that around right. to Ferrari. Even if you have the right package, it is very easy to throw away a win. So very true. Um Again, that was probably the most compelling thing that came out of that race, something that I think a lot of people will be thinking about. Do you think Ferrari can try and coexist with two number one drivers? Ooh, I I don't know. Because if they continue... Right now, the trend is that Leclerc is quicker in qualifying, Vettel's quicker in the race. Ever since they were able to fix the car's downforce problems in Singapore. Obviously, it's a two-race sample size, but... It's what we have to go on right now. If that's the case and they keep trying to lock positions and Vettel is quicker behind than Charles, this will not be the last time they come to blows. Right. And after shortly after the race, Charles Leclerc did say that there is still a trust between himself and Sebastian Vettel. Um, there was a photo that circulated around social media about uh, with uh, with Vettel and Leclerc and Ferrari boss Matteo Bonato uh, just standing in front of the team, just looking, looking just, like the two siblings that got in a big fight and trashed the house. Right, and the uh, the babysitter that could do nothing to prevent them from trashing said house. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how that progresses because if if 
Ferrari do have that advantage in the medium and high-speed corners, then I would anticipate them to be odds-on favorites to win in Japan. But if they keep doing stuff like this, uh, Lewis Hamilton's going to be on for another victory there. As if he needs any help. Should we talk about things that are not Ferrari blowing the Russian Grand Prix and Mercedes capitalizing with a 1-2 finish into the result? Um, Max Verstappen had an incredibly anonymous fourth place, just... Since Ferrari's upswing in pace, Red Bull look just out to sea. Yeah, they had a lot of their cars take uh, take grid drops for engine component changes. Um, the word is that they are saving all their best stuff for the next round, which just happens to be at the Honda-owned Suzuka circuit, very next round of the Japanese Grand Prix. Thinking. Um, one thing that this lead to... <laughs> One thing that this led to was another exceptional charge from deep in the field to fifth place for Alexander Albon, who started Not from just the deep pit in lane. The field. Yeah, he started said, from the pit lane. Yeah, he started from the pit lane, had legitimately very good pace. This is the first time that he's been in the car where I've been convinced, like, yeah, he's starting to show better than Gasly did in the same car. He and made a was, couple really good passes. Yeah, he made up 15 places, and this was after he had gone 20th to 10th in the Toro Rosso, his second-ever Formula One race in China. Then his first race in the Red Bull went from 17th to 5th at the Belgian Grand Prix. Um, before before that had happened, you know, we were talking, and there were discussions of, like, you know, is Albon really that much quicker than Gasly? Because you look at the times of practice and qualifying, and the delta between the second Red Bull and Verstappen looks about the same as it did before they did the swap. But it's been pointed out that Albon is a much more assertive driver in race conditions than Gasly looked at times um, when he was in the Red Bull himself. Now, ultimately, yeah. I do still feel like both drivers are really being set up in a position where they're not it's kind of, again I've said it they're from in the a no-win situation right but because Albon is looking is getting better and better as he gains time in the car and again this is a Formula One rookie in only his first season and he's visiting quite a few of these tracks for the very first time in his career and he's had to get used to two fundamentally different cars in one season and in the second half of that race, later on in that race, he was keeping Max honest in terms of lap time. That's far more than we've been able to say for Gasly really anywhere but Silverstone. Right. Yeah. And and to be fair, Gasly does seem a bit more confident now that he is back in a Toro Rosso um, as opposed to the Red Bull. It seems like he's much more comfortable there, though he did not have such a good day. We'll get into all that in a second. But yeah, um, you think that drive secured Albon's place for Red Bull in 2020? I know it's a very busy driver market. Some suggestions of some more experienced Germans coming into the fold. Whew. I'd wait and see, but he certainly he certainly uh, put in a good word for himself with this drive. That he did. It, it would be a shame if Albon would get cut from that, especially if he's getting better. Again, don't mind so much the fact that he finished 24 seconds behind. Again, he went from 20th to the to finish 5th, and they don't deduct points based on your time delta to the car in front. 
So again, Lewis Hamilton takes his ninth win of the season, his 78th of his career, and good God, he is closing in on Michael Schumacher's record really, really fast. Valtteri Bottas in second, Charles Leclerc in third, 5.2 seconds off the win, 1.4 infuriating seconds behind Valtteri Bottas's, even after putting him on soft tires during the safety car intervention. Yeah, he just couldn't get around him. Dirty yeah, even with Ferrari's straight line speed. The Great Wall of Bottas, the Great Wall of Wingman, stood tall once again. And that's another trend I've actually seen. Leclerc in the Ferrari has not really been able to pass other cars this year. If you look back throughout the year, he has trouble following other cars in this car. And that's not just a dirty air thing. We saw that in Singapore. He had more trouble with traffic than Vettel did. So it's a trend to keep an eye on. Yeah. Again, it is... Again, it is uh, just as with Albon, it's his first year. Leclerc is in his second year. That's going to come with experience, I feel. Uh, But that's ultimately why, hey, you don't want to discard Sebastian Vettel just yet. Yeah, certainly not with the pace he's shown since they've really fixed the car's aerodynamic problems. Italian Grand Prix do not interact. Um, best (laughs) Best of the rest, Carlos signs back in the points for the first time since the summer break in sixth. That was a smooth operator. He is killing it in that McLaren. Yeah, he is the he is the best of the drivers that have not been involved in the big <coughs> sits um, by by far and away this year. And uh, McLaren did say themselves that their result could have been better had it not been for that safety car intervention. But still, sits the eighth for McLaren after they'd been on a bit of a cold streak lately. That's, that's fairness, a very I don't think that, result. I don't so much think that cold streak was down to the lack of pace in the car or drivers. They are still cleanly the best of the rest in terms of outright pace. We'll get to a bit of that not only as we run down the constructor standings, but also in our news section because there are very interesting things afoot in the near future for McLaren, which you may already know about by the time you're listening to this podcast Sergio Perez um, in seventh. Kevin Magnussen got Haas back in the points in ninth place. And Nico Hulkenberg rounding out the points was ninth on the road, finished in tenth after a late penalty, just a second ahead of Lance Stroll, who just missed the points in 11th. Danny Kiviat as well. Magnussen was also hit with a penalty because uh, turn one was a little bit controversial. Which yeah. we'll get to well, more in the junior formulas, but long story short, <laughs> um, Magnuson blew turn one, didn't do the runoff properly, five second time penalty. He was very incensed about that, to which the As FIA was Gunter re- Steiner. Yeah, to which the FIA replied, buddy, nine other people, nine or ten other people did this. It's it's cut and dry, Kevin. Yeah. Better luck next time, Kevin, but still, points for Haas, and Haas suck right now. Yeah, um, this was Haas's first point-scoring finish since the German Grand Prix. It is only the second time that the car has scored points, and either one of their cars have scored points, since Monaco. Mm. Then there's a big chasm of nothing but blue and purple squares in the Wikipedia page, and that's never, ever good. Uh, Daddy Kvyat... Uh, had an interesting weekend because he was in the wars because he brought a brand new special helmet design for his home Grand Prix, and the FIA would not allow him to run it. <laughs> Such a stupid rule. 
And you know why it's there, because not only was Sebastian Vettel winning, and we hated Sebastian Vettel when he was winning, but he'd also change his helmet all the damn time. And why can't drivers just have one simple helmet design? That's what it all stems out of, and it's dumb, and it's stupid, and it's pointless. Creativity bad. Creativity bad. Though, though, even with the this rule in place, some drivers have been able to... You know, I think it's a have once iconic a year helmets and have different designs, but incorporating you know an iconic styling like Sebastian Vettel and the and the German flag yeah, decals. You're on allowed helmet. like slight variations on your existing helmet, and if you want to do like a different color scheme with your regular design, like Vettel did in uh, Singapore, mm-hmm. you can. Yeah. But if you bring a totally different design, I believe it is a once a year thing. Yes, it is a once a year, which thing. I think. I think if he had used his with his Antoine Hubert tribute helmet. And that should yeah. really that should be a freebie given the circumstances. Again, you've just proved the point that the rule is pointless and stupid and it has no place. And honestly, if it were up to me, I would allow Formula One teams to have distinctive designs for both car liveries. B A R O one, anybody? <laughs> yes. As it as it should have been before they put the damn zipper on it. Um, Kimi Raikkonen picked up a drive through penalty. Um, Alpha did not have a good race with hit with Kimi 13th. Antonio Giovinazzi 15th after being caught up in the lap one kerfuffle. Pierre Gasly sandwiched between them in 14th. There were a whopping five DNFs, including for the first time this season, both Rocket Williams Mercedes failing to finish. George oh, Russell man. had an accident that brought out a safety car. Robert Kubica was retired to conserve parts. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Hashtag customer pride. This team is really, really sick. It's, yeah, this is, this is not good. I, 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 I hate, not so much the company itself, because we know Williams as a company is doing okay, because they're more than yeah. just F1 team. I really am afraid we're seeing a Formula One team in its death throes. And... That's that's what worries me. Again, I discussed an idea on the show for what 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 would be a likely viable alternative for Williams should they ever leave Formula One. I don't want it to come this soon, and, and I especially don't want it to come like this. I mean, you're talking about the second most successful teams in terms of uh, championships accumulated in the history of Formula One. We're talking about the team that was the dynasty of the sport as I was coming in to know it through video games and eventually through television. Uh, regardless of how much you, regardless of how much you take the piss out of Williams these days, they are a huge piece of this sports history. Right. We mentioned as well, Sebastian Vettel had that MGUK failure. He did not make the, to the flag. And as we also mentioned Daniel Ricciardo and Romain Grosjean um, had a bit of a scuffle going into turn one. It wasn't. It was on lap one. It wasn't turn one. I don't remember yeah. what turn it is. But uh, yeah, three wide into a turn doesn't really mix. Yeah, as a result, Grosjean was an instant retirement. Um, he did make a very legitimate claim. I know everybody's having a chuckle because, oh, it's Romain Grosjean grabbing comments about other drivers' conducts in lap one. Yeah, Ricardo did kind of squeeze in there, pal. I, I would probably pit the. I would probably pin the blame on uh, Giovinazzi just trying to make it three wide through the middle when there was no room there. I mean, he did try to back out of it. Unfortunately, it was too late. Well, when your pullout game isn't good enough, shit like this happens. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. 
Yes. Oh, goodness. Um, verdict on the race. Just watch... Watch the highlights. Watch the, hi- watch the highlights yeah, and read the Ferrari radio transcript. Actually, just watch the uh, the radio highlights that F1 posted after the race. I-, I think that's all you need to watch, honestly. Or if 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 you if you want the long form highlights of everything you need to watch, just uh, if you have access to F1 TV Pro, just ride along with Sebastian Vettel. When his race ends, your race ends too. Yeah, that's that's perfect. We don't have any people from the United Kingdom on this recording. It's fine. We can plug the hell out of it. It's <laughs> F1 TV Pro. Oh, well, well, at least Ferrari won the second round of the F1 Esports Championship. That's good news. <laughs> Championship of the future, guys. I gotta say, I woke up halfway through it having missed all the initial drama, and I gotta say I feel like I got everything I needed. Um, yeah. All you need to know is Super Pastor Dre... Join the voice chat that the Discord was in, said, fuck this fucking team, then <laughs> Let's look at our uh, driver's championship standings really quick. We have, holy shit, we have five races left. This season, Just engrave this the damn trophy already. Come on, what are we waiting for? It is 322 to Valtteri Bottas' 249 advantage Lewis Hamilton, who looks like he is well on his way to picking up his sixth world championship. Charles Leclerc has jumped to third. He is on 215 points ahead of Max Verstappen on 212. Sebastian Vettel in fifth on 194. And then a long chasm to everybody that has not spent a full season as part of the big trick sits. Pierre Gasly (laughs) sits on a very nice total of... 69. Nice. Nice points. But Carlos signs just three points back of him in seventh in the championship. And thanks to driving a Red Bull, Alexander Albon is climbing the rankings. He's eighth on 52. Lando Norris, who should be pointed out, does not like sushi. I'll be very glad to <laughs> let you know that he is not a big fan of sushi. But he is a big fan of big results. And he is ninth in the standings on 35 points. There's now nothing in between the two Renault drivers. Daniel Ricciardo is 10th on countback ahead of Nico Hulkenberg. Both are on 34 points. Yeah, take a step back. Take a step back, Cyril. Um, You spent all that money, you paid out the nose, and they're on the same points total. Good fucking job. Why not just start a second Renault team? If you really just want Nico Hulkenberg to have a drive. but they're, They're not doing a good enough job with the first Renault team. And soon to be the only Renault team. Remember that it becomes important later. Let's let's get a second Renault team with Hulkenberg and Jack Aiken. Daniel Kvyat and Sergio Perez uh, also level on 33 points. Kimi Raikkonen on 31. Damn, this midfield battle is tight. And then you have Kevin Magnussen on 20, Lance Stroll on 19, Roman Grosjean on 8, Antonio Giovinazzi 4, Robert Kubitz of 1, George Russell, Cerro Puntos. Constructors Championship. Yeah, just engraved this one. Mercedes on 571 to Ferrari's 409. You think Gra- they're catching them? for the uh, silver trophy as well. Yeah, because Ferrari now have a decisive uh, advantage over Red Bull Honda on 311 points. Um, but McLaren, the most on-brand team in the championship. Because Ting, King, how many points do they have? 101. We stand. 
<laughs> I'm pretty sure you're going to score points next round. So let's enjoy this while we while uh, for, for just one gap between rounds. They can be on brand. Yes. <laughs> McLaren Renault, the most on brand team. And they are, well, 33 points ahead of the works Renault team on 68 points. Toro Rosso on 55 Racing Point on 52, Alfa Romeo on 35, Haas on 28, and Williams Unpunto. Believe they are still on track for their worst season ever. <sighs> yeah, it's 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 not looking good. So Nets race will be at the only track that I've that I've actually been to in person. That's on the F1 what? calendar right now, the Japanese Grand Prix at Suzuka. Hell yeah. Do you think do you think Red Bull and Honda are going to combine to uh, to walk the field? As far as we know, Honda. Well, we know that they're getting a new fuel. Exxon Mobil has confirmed it. Rumors: it's worth about twenty five horsepower. The engine is not the problem with Red Bull right now. Mm-hmm. They are, I believe, the calculation on the same graph that said where Ferrari was relative to Merck. Red Bull is another point oh three off, and you think that's not a big gap? In Formula One, it is. That's, that's Red Bull's true. Red Bull's chassis just is not good enough this year, and that will, of course, be in two weeks' time at Suzuka International Racing Course in Suzuka, Japan, the Japanese Grand Prix. Five rounds left in the championship. Not much of a championship anymore, now, is it? <laughs> yeah. That's that's a bit true. Um, I, I I agree with Dre's consensus rating. Three out of ten. Nothing burger of a race. If this track were to fall off the calendar, I don't know if I'd miss it that much. Funny you mention that. <laughs> More on that later. Shall we talk about some uh, some of the support car? Because it always seems like anytime Formula One comes to Russia, the F1 race is dreadful. The Formula Two and Formula Three races are at least, if not completely balls to the wall, entertaining. There's something good. compelling. They're yeah. they're at least good. And if nothing else, we got this was the weekend of champions because Nick DeVries came in. Uh, having a decisive advantage over his championship rival, Nicholas Latifi, in the Formula 2 championship, where if he won the race, he could effectively win the championship. And boy, did Mercedes-Benz's newest factory single-seater racing recruits do the damn job. He took pole for the feature race, and he won the feature race, and with it, he is your 2019 Formula 2 champion, of the world, he got the job done. He really did. It's gonna, it's, it's gonna be so unfortunate for Formula One, seeing that he's not gonna be in Formula I One. I disagree. I, I disagree with that entirely. It's great that DeVries has an opportunity where he can actually win races with Mercedes Formula E team, which is much more. Uh, than- uh, no, I, I'm saying it's unfortunate for Formula One. I'm, it's yeah. not unfortunate for Nick DeVries in the slightest. But regardless of the many of the social media armies who said, oh, well, he did nothing with McLaren. Man's talented. He's going to do great things in FE at some point, as much as it's going to piss me off to see Mercedes beating Porsche there. Yeah. He, 
Okay, so this is his third season in Formula Two. Um, yep. He was he was a consistent race winner last year with Prima, and we know that while Prima did do excellent things in 2017 with Leclerc, they are not to the level they are in the Formula Three level, which we'll talk about shortly. Uh, DeVries has just been unlucky to be roadblocked by first Kevin Magnussen and Stoffel Van Dorn, and then later Lando Norris. He got jumped in the queue, well, despite being he, a yeah, pretty he, he basically got guard. Yeah, he basically got screwed by really Jensen sticking around for a while, and then Alonso coming in kind of out of nowhere into the McLaren fold. And I know he is a bit of an older champion. He's a bit longer in the tooth, but he's still a very, very talented driver, as this year has proven. He came back from, from an early deficit to take command of the championship, and he is too good of a driver to be um, toiling around with a midfield LMP2 team, or God forbid, toiling around running 17th all the time with a backmarker F1 team, as what's looking likely to happen with Nicholas Latifi unless, you know, someone else gets that other Williams seat. Sorry, Hulk. Uh, but it, it was a great season for, for Nick DeVries, and it was great to see him. He, he had a perfect weekend, a near-perfect weekend at uh, Sochi because he finished second in the sprint race. Nicholas Satifi, um, story emblematic of a season in the feature race, comes up just short in second place with uh, Louis Delatraz rounding off the podium of the feature events. Um... But we got to talk about the sprint race. Because, oh, Jesus. Because, oh, God, the sprint race. Because I think the last thing that Formula 2 needed uh, lately was a scary accident where it took us a while to figure out if both drivers were involved were okay. Um, so, King, walk us through what happened on the first lap of this sprint race that happened early Sunday morning. Yes, so the cars head off from the start, and you know it's over a kilometer until the first hard corner turn two. And obviously, cars go head off into the runoff. Uh, I know one or two cars I saw from the footage actually went around the slalom that they're supposed to. Yeah. Except for one guy. One. Nikita Mazepin. Yeah, Nikita Mazepin. We decides to eat that meat through the runoff. And Jack Aiken, was it Jack Aiken? Yes. Yeah, Aiken was also involved. Yeah, Aiken takes the runoff properly. And that mm -hmm. involves going um, going around a couple of bollards. They met. Yeah. And it all kind of kicked off from there. Right. And when those two cars collided, Nikita Mazepin had uh, nowhere to go but right into the path of Nobuhara Matsusha, who was trying to evade the mess gets clipped on his left-hand side and goes straight into the Tech Pro barriers and just digs right in. Mazepin slides right into his stationary car. That's Both the bigger hit here is that Mazepin's car then hit, um, then hit Nobuharu's while his was basically up against the concrete. This was obviously... Very, very frightening as we are just weeks away from the tragedy that happened at Spa. And it took us a while and we were all understandably worried about because uh, we didn't hear much from Nobuhara Matsushita. I can tell you that both drivers are okay. Both are both are in good condition. Matsushita was held at the local hospital for some further tests, but they are going to make a full recovery and they are going to race at Yas Marina. 
um, though Nikita Mazepin will do so with a 15-place grid drop, which, given how it was discussed, um, former F2 commentator Will Butston, who has always been, you know, has always held driver standards, held these young drivers to to higher standards and been able to call them out when they're not driving well, said that should have been a weekend ban for if that's why you were giving him drip drop, then that should just be a race ban. I'm going to agree with Buxton here solely on the fact that drivers were told all weekend, if you run wide, you take the, the runoff that is prescribed. Right. You do not just cut the corner. He knew better, and he caused a gigantic accident by not following procedure. Right. Yep, he caused a massive accident. Again, I don't have necessarily a hard-on for natural runoff like most people, but I feel like, obviously, you can't just not have a runoff at the end of that corner, but I feel like, as long as you have it smoothed out to where cars don't run the risk of sliding off, I think you could put a sand trap at, at the end of that runoff just to make things a little less ambiguous. But then again, yeah. they may not even go there after next year, so what does it even matter anyway? <laughs> you know, <laughs> More on that later. Yeah. Um, Luke Giotto, after the red flag, put on a defensive masterclass and ended up winning that sprint race with DeVries in second and Callum Eilat in third in the championship. So first place is decided and the champion is going to Formula E. But the question is now, who's going to finish second in the championship? It's not so cut and dry because Nicholas Latifi is only 10 points ahead of Giotto, 194 to 184. And it looks like we know what Giotto's going to be up to because he does have an LMP1 privateer drive lined up for this coming weekend, six hours of Fuji. Sergio Oof. set the camera on 165 and Jack Aitken on 159. Nobuhara Matsushita has climbed up to 124. Wan Yu on 122. Jordan King on 79. Antoine Hubert still on 77. Louis Delatraz on 76. Formula 3. Um, King, we're going to let you off the leash here a little bit because, well, we talked about the merger of the European F3 Championship into the GP3 Series to form the FIA Formula 3 Championship. Um, King, how good were Prima in uh, the old European F3 Championship? They were dominant. They were the literally the only team ever to win the FIA Formula 3 European Championship. And in that iteration from 2012 to 2018, only once did they lose the Drivers' Championship to some kid named Norris, who was pretty good. Um, suffice to say, in the new Formula 3, or the old GP3 series, however you want to call it, yeah, Prem is still that good. They won the Constructors' Championship by a mile, and Robert Schwartzman is your new... FIA International Formula 3 Champion of the World. Hometown boy. <laughs> he beat them down. He clinched it at his home race. His longtime championship rival, Marcus Armstrong, did take the win in the feature, but Schwartzman's second place in pole position was enough for him to win the race, with, win the championship with a race in hand, and then he went on to finish third in the sprint race behind Armstrong and eventual winner, Yuri Vips, who took the last win of the 2019 Formula 3 championship season. 
I mean, we are kind of kicking ourselves that we didn't get get a lot of time to cover uh, Formula 3 this season. But this was a fantastic campaign for Schwartzman, where in the uh, in the 16 races that he ran, Schwartzman finished top five in 14 of them. His He only had the retirement in the sprint at Hungary, and he finished eighth in a reverse grid race, another sprint in Monza. Or just couldn't make up any ground after starting eight after he won the feature. Yeah, and, like, it's not even, you know, over this season. Like, he was in a sport, he like, he was champion of the offseason. We're in a category where the offseason matters, where he was uh, the Toyota Racing Series champion over the winter. Last year, he was, you know, the last rookie champion of the European Championship. Like, and he was third overall for the same yeah, Prima he was third team. Overall. For the same Prima and team with which Mick Schumacher won that year's championship. Like, I, I think it's been easy to overlook him for people with bigger names, mm-hmm. but his results speak louder than everyone else's. Yeah. Obviously he is by far not the biggest name in the Ferrari Driver Academy, which has in its employ no less than three second generation drivers, including Schumacher and Alesi and Formula Two, and the younger of the of the this current generation of Fittipaldi is still climbing the ranks. But if you ask me, Robert Schwartzman had a fantastic twenty 2019 in general again winning the toyota racing series then following that up by winning the formula 3 championship on his debut and you again you look at some of the names that have won this championship going back to the very first year of what was then the gp3 series you could argue that maybe the least accomplished driver in that group of 10 drivers was esteban gutierrez which is strange when you say he's the least accomplished out of a field that has also given us champions, Charles Leclerc, George Russell, Esteban Ocon, Valtteri Bottas, Daniel Kvyat. I mean, if things fall Kvyat's way, five of those drivers could be on next year's F1 grid. Yeah, and like, when you think about, strangely, the people who have washed out of GP2, right. like, uh, I mean, GP3. GP3. So, in... In my head, I just think of the Americans. Uh, well, Rossi ended up going to GP2. Joseph Newgarden. Joseph yeah, Newgarden, Newgarden one, Connor Daly. They both washed out at GP, GP3 and went back to America. I wonder whatever you happened know? to him. I know. That Newgarden kid was just not good. Uh, we're, about to have a fi- we're about to have a fist fight on M101. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting the popcorn. Yeah. It's interesting to look at. And I know it's, uh, yeah, this series has also given us um, just of the drivers that had won the championship. I mean, you look at Albon, Sainz, Vern, Alexander Rossi competed here. Um, you think of the champions that didn't reach uh, the heights in F1, you know, obviously we won't know what Antoine Hubert would have done. But you think about, but I think more like guys like Mitch Evans, who has made Formula E his career, and Alex Lynn, who was, at no fault of his own, spit up and chewed up and spit out by the Red Bull uh, junior team. And, you know, Alex Lynn's replacement at Jaguar, which we'll get to you, get to later, James Collado, was also in GP3. Wonder what's happening to him. <laughs> but, yeah, to, uh, to reinforce a point, Prima's three drivers finish one, two, and three in the drivers' championship, <laughs> and they yeah, won right. the team's championship five twenty-seven to two twenty-three. 
Some things don't change. It was either last year or two years ago where I added Freema on Twitter, and I'm like, and I'm like, you guys should like call yourselves Title Town. And they're like, maybe we'll think about doing it next year. Well, it still applies. <laughs> it still applies. So, oh Lord. Yeah. It's. So yeah, we won't be seeing Formula 3s at Abu Dhabi. Sochi was their last race. And with that, um, I'm going to quickly run down the Drivers' Championship. There were over 30 drivers that took part. Robert Schwartzman, of course, led the pack. 212 points. He had three race victories and 10 podiums in 2019. Marcus Armstrong was second on 158. Jayon Darvala just a point behind on 157. Yuri Vips, with a strong finish to win the final race of the season, was fourth on 141, and was very close in fifth with Pedro Pique on 98, ahead of Christian Lungard on 97, JQ seventh with 90 points, Leonardo Pulcini in eighth on 78, Yuki Tsunoda ninth on 67 points, Matt's Futrell tenth on 57, Liam Lawson eleventh on 41, Nico Kari twelfth on 36, Richard Vershore thirteenth on 34, David Beckman, who missed the last round of the championship due to family reasons, only 14th on 20 points. Um, that was a bit of a surprise, given how strong he was in the second half of last year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, con- considering what's been going on in his life, like, it it seems like that might have been, you know... Understandable, yes. Yeah. Um Bent Fiscal, 15th on 10 points. Felipe Drogovic, 16th on 8. Fabio Schurer with 7 points. Lerum Zendeli with 6. Logan Sargent, America's Logan Sargent, 19th on 5 points. Oof. Alex Peroni, 20th on 5 points. Yeyefe with 4 points. Raul Hyman with just 2. As is Simo Laksanen. Tepe Notori with a single point. These following drivers did not score any points. Devlin DeFrancesco, Andreas Esner, Sebastian Fernandez, Kayvon Andres Suri, Alessio Deleda, Giorgio Carrera, Artem Petrov, David Schumacher, Han Chao Lung, and Federico Malvastidi. The 34th and final driver in the Formula 3 championship rankings. And Schwartzman has already told the press that an F2 drive is 99% secure, which shouldn't be a surprise. We talked about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's he's... He's going to be moving up the ranks. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, looking at Formula 3 this year and all the guys who could possibly be moving up to F2 next year, man, F2 is going to be so good F2 next year. looking thick. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's a very, that's, yeah, you, you won't have to complain long about F2's grid feeling thin and unaccomplished with too many, uh, overcooked veteran talents for long oh no 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 oh no 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 um so yeah if you if you have f1 tv pro um i highly recommend to go go out of your way as watch as much of formula 3 as you possibly can it's been a good season and this this crop of youngins is going to be really really something to watch if they once when and if they move up to f2 next year just saying um, we're going to take a bit of uh, time away from the car scene a bit. We're going to take a bit of a break and then we're going to switch over to bikes with a historic weekend in Circuit Magnicourt in France. It's the third to last round of the World Superbikes Championship and a five star weekend for one Jonathan Ray. 
You know, we've been going on about how obviously awesome Mark Marquez has been in MotoGP. That is undeniable. But I want to point something out here. Um, midway through the Hereth weekend, after the Super Bowl race, Alvaro Bautista had a 61-point lead over Jonathan Ray in the championship. Alvaro Bautista had gone on an absolute tear to open up his World Superbike career. He had a winning streak so dominant that Andre Harrison had decreed that until he gets beaten substantially and we get some more intrigue, we're not talking about World Superbikes in this show anymore. <laughs> Funny how life works. Funny how life works that Jonathan Ray came into this weekend with a chance to clinch the title with not one but two rounds in hand. And that's exactly what happened at the World Superbike Championship round at Madden Core. But before we get to the second race in which Jonathan Ray did wrap up that title, Cam, we got to talk about race one. Excuse me, the 800th World Superbike Grand Prix event. But damn, what a race this was. Oh my god. Who predicted that guy winning? Anyone? Nope. Anyone on earth? From no. 16th on the grid, you would not have expected young Turkish rider Toprak Razgadioglu to carve his way through the field. Because for much Let's of take that a race, moment. Let's take a moment. The man who was benched for the Suzuka eight hours <laughs> for not being good enough. Or not being accomplished enough. But I think that's uh, that problem's been solved. For much of this race, though, it was mostly a three-bike fight between... Ray with championship on the line, Yamaha's Michael Vandermark, and BMW's Tom Sykes? <laughs> Where this on was a three-way they... manufacturer war. Yeah. Right. Magni Corps, I know it was not so much a power track in F1. Is it the same in bikes? Yeah, so they could easily make up whatever power deficit they could because it was... <laughs> Top rack of D's rag, yeah, the Oculus. God damn it, Steve. I can't believe the this man. But before we jump the queue a bit, yeah, this was predominantly a three-bike race up until about the finish. Where uh, it looked like uh, Vandermark had, uh, had broken Jonathan Ray for this round. Ray was still going to collect the points and move one step closer to wrapping up the title. But oh no! Michael Vandermark, you've fallen off your bike! Again. Uh. Yeah, not not exactly ideal. So at that point, you're thinking, right, that's it. Jonathan Ray is coming to win this race, but... Oh my goodness me! With a fantastic last lap. Top rack, This was a Oakley. last lap on the level of Marquez's at Australia Hit 2015. Hit him with it. Hit him with the steel chair. Jonathan Ray started the last lap with an eight-tenths of a second advantage. That's kind of an eternity in motorcycle racing. And he's Jonathan Ray. He's Jonathan Ray, Mr. Consistency himself. Against a relatively unproven young rider who, again, because of his unprovenness, Kawasaki elected not to have him run during the biggest endurance motorcycle race of the year. He got his vengeance. He got his vengeance with his first Premier Class victory. That will also make Turkey the 17th country 
to field a world superbike race winner. Uh, that was that that was really impressive. And again, after qualifying 16th for this race, he was up to seventh on the opening lap. Lance Stroll, eat your heart out. Goodness gracious. It was a fantastic last lap. If you have the World Superbike video pass, I know they're not paying us, but uh we do have an watch insider it. who would if you if you if you get it, you you should watch it. Like if you're <laughs> stop, watching just stop World what you're doing right now. Watch yeah, it. Pa- then come back, this, please. We we want you to listen podcast. to the rest of this. Pause this podcast, come back and watch this. You know, it was impressive enough that Top Rack came back from 16th to win this race. Top Rack is not the best qualifier at this stage in his career. He's never qualified higher than 7th. If he could iron that out and get his bike onto the front two rows, especially Ooh. with his new surroundings, oh yeah, because uh, he had something to announce. Oh yes, and that will come shortly. And the, the winning did not stop for Top Rack because he did go on to win the Super Bowl, the Super Pole race as well. I know it's not really a race, but it but it is a race, but it's not. It's a race. It depends. It's it's fuzzy. It's a it's a race in our heart. It is a race in our heart, and that set us up for race number two, championship point for Jonathan Ray, and and all that glory that Top Rack covered himself in. Well. He is still a very young and emerging rider. He'll have his day. Um, he had a great weekend regardless. Yeah, he had a great weekend. However, in the second race, middle of the pack, he bends the bike in front of one Alvaro Bautista. Both guys go tumbling off their bikes. Checkmate. Yeah, and that does... Uh... That does open the door for uh, for Michael Vandermark to uh, to continue his fight with Jonathan Ray. Vandermark gave it all he could, but in the end, it was Jonathan Ray taking the victory and his fifth world championship in superbike racing. Just unreal. He has broken the record that was held by Carl Fogarty, who, before his career-ending injuries, was long considered to be the gold standard of superbike racing. We're seeing something truly historic, just as we are in MotoGP. We're seeing a man rewrite the record books and put every record conceivable completely out of reach. Um, he's he's getting close to doubling the second winningest rider's total on the all-time wins list. He overturned a 61-point gap and won the title three races early. If you go on World Superbike's uh, website... Um, they do have five key moments that shaped his championship fight. Um, there was, of course, Phillip Island. Ray had been quick in testing. But people were talking about that so-called Kawasaki killer that, Bugatti, that Ducati had built. And then, well, Alvaro Batista just wiped the floor with everybody that weekend. And every weekend. For months. But and what we didn't know is that all those second places that Ray was grabbing would be the most important results of the year for him. Because yeah. when Bautista started putting it on the floor, Ray didn't. Yes. Um, Imola was when Jonathan Ray finally opened things up with his first win. And at Jerez, again, this was this was the largest the deficit would ever be. 61 points until Bautista fell for the first time that season. Um, and there was still hope for Jonathan Ray. 
and Batista's collapse came so suddenly that he was already in the championship lead just just two rounds later at Donington. You don't win your championship on your best day. You win it on your worst. And, uh, well, Jonathan Ray doesn't have any bad days. Because even his bad days where he was getting beat by several seconds, um, you know, that was a time where it was Batista winning by a mile over Ray, and then Ray was second by a mile ahead of everybody else. And that, that run of second place finishes, indeed, it turned out to be very important. That's That was the thing, and Dre will tell you this, Lewis will tell you this, his consistency is key to winning these championships, where even when he doesn't win, he is always in the fight. Exactly. It's, it do, it's It doesn't mind. matter how you win your championship. That is that you won your championship. Yeah, this is already yep. the man who tied the record for the most wins in a season. He holds the record for the most podium finishes in a single season. A record which is in the top four, and there are only four people who have more than 21 podiums in a single season. Well, I take that back. No. Okay, I, I want to scratch that there. So yeah, he's he has the most wins. He's tied the most wins in a single season. 17 just last year. He has the most fastest laps in a single season. And in terms of race wins, he is 83 to Carl Fogarty's 59, and now he's pulled ahead five world championships to pull. Jonathan Ray Lewis, had 20. Yeah, Lewis just dropped it in the chat. From 31 starts this year, 28 podiums, zero DNFs. That is what wins. That's what's won. That's, all that's invincible. God, he only fell once all last year, too, in Bernal. Yeah. And only twice the year before that. And only twice the year before that. And only once the year before that. Mark Marquez has more falls in a weekend than he's had this decade. (laughs) You can count so far this season. One, two, three, four, five, six DNFs in five seasons. Do you know how hard that is? It's ridiculous. I mean, forgive us if we seem like we're just bloviating and just going it's on deserved. and on. Every it's, word is deserved. It's ridiculous. No, I, oh. I can't think of anyone else in racing, period, who is that consistent. How many of his 140 podiums and 230 starts uh, have come just within these last five years of, alone? Again, you flip a coin... And you still have less a chance of it landing on heads than Jonathan Ray does on finishing on the podium in a Superbike World Championship round. <laughs> My God. Yeah, and Alvaro, six DNFs this year. Including the one at Magni Core, which ultimately, if if it wasn't out of reach already, that, that pretty much sealed it. Yeah, it's gone now. It's it's entirely gone, and now you have to wonder: is is second place even that secure? Well, well, it is. It's it's secure in second place. You can engrave the gold and the silver trophies. There's still a little bit of intrigue for third in the championship with just Argentina and one hot night and cutter still left to go because uh, the two Yamaha riders, Alex Lowe's and Michael Vandermark, are separated by just five points apiece. But hold on! With those two wins on the weekend, Top Rack is now fifth on 260. It's, uh, yeah, that's pretty much your last uh, championship intrigue. I mean, God, 
It's going to be very... Picking an athlete of the year, you have to throw Jonathan Ray into this discussion, don't you? Don't you? For for the job that he's done this year. And, of course, that just building upon what he's already done over the last five years. Oh, my goodness. While there is not so much championship intrigue in World Super Bike, World Super Sports? Well, things are a little bit different. Because uh, Randy Krumenacher, your championship leader, had a nasty high side during the race at Madden Core, And that opened up the door for Federico Caracasulo to potentially vault his way into the championship lead until he dropped it. Not only once, but twice. So who's going to win the race? Aha, uh-huh. it's the guy with the rule. The guy in his own crowd. Lucas Mahias taking the win just over Isaac Vinales in second and Ayrton Badovini. Do Italy. Do, do, do in third. <laughs> no, but no one wanted to win that race, as Steve points out. No, you have it. No, you have it. The end result is that Krumenacher and Caracasulo, they stalemate and they're still separated by just 10 points going into the Argentina round. Again, just as there is with World Superbike. It's. Uh, our, our insider, Lewis, has pointed out, uh, gives his take here. Uh, that's unforgivable from Caracasulo to drop it from a two-second lead after he'd already seen Krumenacher go ass over tea kettle. Oh. But hey, I'm just glad we can talk about Lucas Mahias in the context other than a really stupid red flag rule that probably should be off the books. Aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. We do have a championship clinched in the the third tier, the World Supersport 300 Championship. It is the passing of the church, as, uh, as Ana Carrasco did win at Magna Corps. But we do have a new champion, 17-year-old Manuel Gonzalez, finishing in second and becoming your new Supersport 300 World Champion. That's three titles in a row for Spanish riders. Um, Carrasco winning the race. Um, it, uh, I also want to point out as well here and just touching back on world super sport and we're getting this from our insider, Lewis, uh, Luke, Jaime, Jaime Mahias just ended Kawasaki's 24th race winning streak. In world no, super uh, Yamaha's sport. 24 race winning streak. Yamaha's. Yeah. Mahias and Kawasaki ending Yamaha's 24 race winning streak in world super sport. My apologies. And yes, we did James 17 years old. 17 years old, making him the youngest road racing world champion in motorcycle racing history. God, for Manuel Gonzalez, he's got a bright future ahead of him. Oh, yeah. I think so, I think he's talented enough that he could, whatever ladder he decides to go on, I think he could make a name for himself. Uh, I, I definitely, I don't disagree with that. Ken, just incredible and for Anna Carrasco I I know she had a bit of a letdown season but two wins already and again she is already a history maker in her own right as the first woman to uh to to become a world champion and uh Lewis gives his pace and he says Gonzalez will probably go to the GP ladder possibly into the CV CV cup and from there who knows so the next time we'll see these superbikes in action with the championships already wrapped up in the Premier class will be 12th and 13th of October in Circuito San Juan Villicum in Argentina. 
the second-to-last round of the World Superbikes Championship. It's not at the venue that we go to for MotoGP. It's a different one. Should we, uh, should we get into the news, folks? Because we've gotten... Uh, it is a thick with 38 Cs. So we're going to try and get through Actually, wait. Of this. Before we do that... Mm-hmm. Roval, baby! Yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's just kick things off here, uh, by talking about, uh, NASCAR at the Roval, but also IndyCar at the Roval, because Joseph Newgarden did a demo lap, your newly crowned IndyCar champion, and that had people thinking about, hey, could IndyCar go to the Roval in Charlotte? There's no plans, but there should be. It's, yeah. <laughs> no, we cannot talk about Tottenham. This is, this is not a Premier League <laughs> podcast. This is an NFL podcast only. But yes, um, the Roval happened. And we turn to our resident NASCAR correspondent, Cameron Buckley, for all the latest. Chase Elliott whooped that ass. At- I thought he was in the wall. He was oh, in he- the wall. and then, Yeah, he was in the wall doing burnouts against the wall. <laughs> dominated the race. Yeah, dominated Dom- the race. Crashed into the wall almost throwing that away, and then comes back and wins the damn race anyway to punch his ticket to the round of 12. Yeah. Um, Chase Elliott is the best road course driver in NASCAR right now. Change my mind. You can't change. You can't change our minds on this, honestly. Yeah. And a more interesting story, Alex Mm. Bowman finishing P2 after some uh, altercations with Bubba Wallace Jr. early in the race. Yeah, it it makes us sad because they're both fan. They're both favorites of ours. We we love Bob Wallace, and we're we're we also like Alex Bowman as well. So it hurts that they have to fight, and it hurts they have to fight and get medical staff involved. Yeah. So after the whole uh, after the race ended, Bowman finishes P two to finish in. He He's advances in. to the next round of the playoffs by He's one in. point. He's in. He's in. But early in the race, well... Him and Bubba had a bit of a disagreement. Yeah, they did. You see, Bubba was holding him up, and this is kind of a problem with the NASCAR playoffs in general, is that, Mm -hmm. well, you've got drivers in the playoffs on the track. You've also got drivers with nothing to do with the championship on the track. But they're still obligated to run the full season, and that they will. And that they will, and they will fight for track position because that is their job as a racing driver. Yeah. Well, he was holding up Bowman, so Bowman just put his ass in the wall. And Wallace did not take too kindly to that, so after the race, as Bowman was receiving medical attention, Bubba Wallace just uh, just hit him with that, uh, with that ice-cold Dasani. <laughs> yeah. Bowman was on the ground next to his car with NASCAR's chief medical officer tending to him on the ground for dehydration. All they wanted to do was just help out. Yeah. <laughs> water's, fluid, water's fluid, right? Yeah. And um, now, of course, NASCAR is famous for its post-race altercations. Yeah. 
it will tell you that it's such a shame, even though they will throw all of the post-race altercations into all of their promotional material when and where they see fit. Yeah. Get that broadcast footage, fam. Yeah, but in this instance, going after someone who was receiving medical attention and then saying that they were faking it after the race, that's a little bit much, Baba. I get it, though I also do feel like... If the roles were reversed and it was Bowman attacking Wallace with a with a bottle of water, I think I know NASCAR's reaction will be the same regardless. I think the fan reaction would be a little bit different for reasons King and Dre and myself are especially well aware of. But we'll yeah. just leave it at that. Yeah. The championship progresses on to the round of twelve. That is our NASCAR discussion. You know what I really, really want to talk about more than anything else? I want to talk about the uh, the padded up zip zip up sweatshirt, which you can buy for. I was thinking the same nine... thing. Yes, you can buy it in five different sizes on alphatory.com. Now, why are we talking about a clothing section, especially one that doesn't sponsor us, on a podcast about race cars? Scuderia Toro Rosso is dead. Long live Scuderia Alphatory. Scuderia Toro Rosso has applied for a name change for the 2020 Formula One season. They will now be named after Red Bull's faction line. Okay. There's there's a lot to unpack here. I think it's pretty telling that the Autosport headline generator tweeted, this is too far out even for us. (laughs) <laughs> okay I, so, number one so first didn't of, know red bull had a fashion yeah line. that's what that's my first raise point. your when hand f- no 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 put the hand down put the hand down you yes. didn't know podcasting as a visual medium of course we can see those hands being raised high up in the air none of you knew red bull had a fashion line quit lying <laughs> i knew i sure as shit didn't <laughs> oh, oh man <laughs> but yeah this is strange because when Red Bull bought Minardi in 2005 and rebranded that team to Toro Rosso, that felt very strange. But now we're at the point where the name Toro Rosso has been around almost as long as Minardi was on the Efron grid in total. 15 years to about 20. Now it seems strange that they're going to change the name again. When all we heard the rumors were was that Red Bull, if they were going to do anything with that team, was just sell it off to somebody else and... Wash their hands of it. They sold it off to their own new other brand. All of this clothing, by the way, is immensely overpriced. And $75 for a t-shirt. Uh, to quote the great poet laureate Macklemore, yo, that's $50 for a t-shirt. <laughs> oh. oh no, it's, it's 60 euro for a t-shirt. That's even more expensive. Oh god, it's so much worse. Uh, yeah, that's that's a bit strange. Um, it doesn't look like it's going to have much of an effect on the day-to-day operations of the constructors, soon to be formerly known as Toro Rosso, previously formerly known as Minardi. Um, it looks like they're still going to go about their business as usual. It's just really, really strange. I guess it's not unprecedented because Benetton's a clothing line, but who the fuck knew Red Bull had a clothing line of their own? I had no idea. 
<laughs> I don't know how much a trench coat is, but I can tell you yeah, that... Did Helmet Marco even know that they had a clothing line before it was pitched to him? A padded Prima Loft long coat, a long, luxurious winter coat, 450 euros... King, King, I'm actually kind of disappointed that um, that they didn't get title sponsorship from Big Baller Brand. Yeah, need the Triple B in FIA Formula One. Oh God! I thought that was about to rhyme with Triple. Lewis B Hamilton wouldn't Formula be able to B. handle me on the racetrack. Or Triple B in FIA Formula E. <laughs> Lewis Hamilton is too small. Um, some some other important uh. Administrative news happened in Formula One over this weekend. Um, now, we were skeptical to talk about this at length because the only source we had heard from was a noted former winner of the Fallon Dior or Joe's Award. But this one started picking up steam and then it was made official. McLaren are breaking things off with Renault after the 2020 season and they're going to Mercedes Power. The power's back. Two X's ago, they texted you up. <laughs> Two X's ago. The partnership that won the 1998 Drivers and Constructors Championship, as well as Drivers Championships in 1999 and 2008, is back in business starting in 2021. Oh, boy. So, obviously... It- McLaren have been fine. They've been much better, and I believe it was Andrea Seidel um, who pushed for that switch from Renault to McLaren because as good as... I I know it's not necessarily the fault of Renault that McLaren are only fourth in the championship. They're certainly getting a lot more out of those power plants than the factory team at this point in time. All that shit at the end of 2014, all that suffering with Honda just went right back. Yeah, back to the <laughs> back to the supplier that they left because they didn't want to be as co- <laughs> a customer team. But hey, that was that was one CEO ago. Yeah, that's very very true. And plus, you know, Renault, I'm sure they can find another partner. I know Williams had that long term deal. Um, perhaps, perhaps they are fine with Racing Point. I'm not sure. It's no. Because Mercedes has already supplied four teams multiple times this era. Four teams in 2014, 15, yeah, and that, 16. Yeah, that's why I'm thinking, like, one of those Mercedes teams has got to jump ship to somewhere else, right? They got to. Yeah. In the, if, if they have any sense, they won't. But ultimately, they do have to try and balance the books a little bit. Also, I love that McLaren Honda, that McLaren had said, we don't want to do a deal with Ferrari. It just wouldn't make sense. So they go with Mercedes-Benz. They're also automakers too, you know. Well, we saw how it worked out with Honda. Uh, that's, yeah, I, I, I suppose that's true. I mean, um, again, this is a partnership that first broke off in 2014. And the reason why we were excited about McLaren Honda was nostalgia. And, well, look where that got us. Um, on the side of the road, on fire. Yeah, I'm not going to say that it's going to be back to race wins and championships for the new McLaren Mercedes in 2021, because for all we know, Mercedes could get the 2021 engine regs horribly wrong. The engine regs aren't changing. But where they are right now, and I know some people are like, oh, they could be challenging for wins. McLaren, where they are right now, are kind of at their ceiling in terms of 
not so much speed relative to the cars ahead of them, but realistic constructors position. They're only ever yeah. going to be fourth best. That said, maybe some podiums on the card. Yeah, I, I would love to see them at least get back on the podium. Though I think for a lot of people, they want to see McLaren back to winning races and competing t- for titles. Will that happen yeah. anytime soon? I don't know. A lot can happen in a couple of years. Fortunately, it seems that every time McLaren gets the car right, the engine sucks. And every time they get the engine right, the car sucks. Yeah, If they can continue their current trajectory, they could spring a surprise. Now, let's go over to a couple of things uh, in IndyCar. We mentioned uh, Joseph Newgarden at the Roval. We also had the first test of the aero screen, which led to Connor Daly slapping a Fig Newton's logo on the top of the aero screen in reference to that one time in Talladega Nights where Ricky Dravi, Ricky Bobby drove with a Fig Newton sticker on his windshield. Because it is dangerous and inconvenient, but man, does he love Fig Newtons. <laughs> I love IndyCar Twitter. And uh, Marco Andretti... Well, he brought out the fucking T to all the fans who think the IndyCar windscreen doesn't quote unquote look good. Just remember, it's not your heads headed toward the fence. We welcome your responses in any other departments, though. <laughs> yeah, these drivers, uh, they know the risks better than a lot of our armchair pundits do, including myself. I know we dunk on Marco Andretti for being slow and underperforming his legacy, but he's dead on there. Because yeah. that era screen... I know it's a little bit unsightly because it sits a little bit higher above the car and it kind of looks like a top fuel dragster, but the proportions are wrong. If it prevents an accident from what happened with Justin Wilson, Pocono and 20 thing from happening again, then it will absolutely be worth it. And keep in mind as well, they're going to redesign the cars anyway for 2022. Exactly. That's kind of the thing here. This is just kind of stuck upon the existing IR18. The next generation IndyCar, I believe when they introduce their next uh, engine regulation set, Mm-hmm. It's going to be integrated directly into the top. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a good placeholder. And honestly, I think it looks a lot nicer than the Halo, aesthetically yeah. so. Yeah, it does look better than the Halo. And Function I, out. I also think with the higher rear wings on the, uh, the um, road course spec cars, they'll look a little bit more proportional. I think <sighs> the tiny rear wing on the oval cars isn't really doing it any favors in terms of proportions. I need to go off on one for something that I've been... I've been wanting to talk about for a couple of weeks. Yeah, um, King, because you want to uh, you want to grab the the deck chairs. Yep, gonna get crack a cold one out here because <laughs> RJ is about to blow the fuck up. I, I, I understand that there are sponsors in sport who are very protective about their image. I completely get that, um, and I. I There's just no way to say this, but multiple sources are now reporting that James Hinchcliffe's future at what will become Arrow SP McLaren Racing is in jeopardy because Arrow Global are so incensed that James Hinchcliffe did the body issue with Arrow sponsorship logos blurred out that they were willing to, according to Racer.com's Robin Miller, drop James Hinchcliffe for the final round of the season and replaced him with the newly crowned Indy Lights champion Oliver Askew. That, of course, did not happen. But the fact that that's even on the table... IndyCar is one of the most popular drivers in IndyCar. 
they are willing to fire the most popular driver in the sport because they got their fifis hurt over some non-explicit artistic nude photos in an ESPN magazine shoot. That has had every kind of athlete from every kind of sport in its history. It, Fuck you, Arrow. Uh, Fuck you I'm and the sorry. horse you rode in on. Uh, if if that turns out to be the case, and if this relationship can't be patched up, that's 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 a terrible, terrible look for a company that has put themselves front and center to become one of the most prominent sponsors, not just in IndyCar, but now they have an involved role with the McLaren F1 team too. And that's how that whole partnership came about. Now, I know that some of the people that were dismissed as a result of that fiasco were ultimately going to be dismissed anyway because McLaren Racing wanted to bring in new management. I get that. But where the hell else are you going to find a driver who is a bankable commodity in or around the top 10 or points, at least to win a season, several podiums, and likable dragging as hell? And dragging that team kicking and screaming. If you, if, you let, if you let him go, you'll live to regret it, and especially over something stupid like this. Because now... Where the hell else is he going to go? Because obviously he has ties with Honda Canada. So I'm thinking the only places really left are going to be with Honda Power teams. Where else is there? Does Ganassi start up a third team? Does he go to that long-rumored Ray Hall Lanterman car? The only one on the grid right now, you know, you know, pass up the speculation of a third car, at new, a new third car at teams. The only real option he has is Dale Coyne. James Hinchcliffe to Dale Coyne. I know they're not the worst team, but that is still a massive drop-off. And for what? Because you got your fee-fees hurt. And especially when you consider, you know, you consider what happened with Hinchcliffe with his near-fatal accident. You know, talking yeah, about it in that issue. Yeah. You'd figure that would be good publicity for you and your company. I guess not. I guess you're... I guess you've got to just... Uh, let's, let's get up the Fallon Dior... Uh, nominee list. Yeah, they're they're um, moving their way up on the short list, and if this partnership implodes, I'd say they're solidly in the nominees for that. That is just that it's inexcusable, in my opinion, to to cut somebody it like really that. Really is. I mean, I mean, I'm gonna go out there and say it. You can you can make all the desophobic slurs in the Formula Two paddock that you can make, and you can still get promoted. <laughs> but don't you dare do the ESPN body issue. Portraying yourself in the yard of bricks, sitting in an indie car. It's a fucking joke. King, let's talk about some Formula E. Ooh, big news from Formula E. We, it was, I wouldn't say weird that Formula, that uh, Jaguar, that Panasonic Jaguar Racing decided to announce one of their drivers first, and they're like, oh, second seat's open, and it left a lot of people wishfully thinking about who would get that second seat at Jag. Mostly drivers whose names rhyme with Rico Tolkenberg. Especially when uh, <laughs> there was some Instagram activity between them. Oh yeah, because they yeah. followed each other. Oh boy, now it's happening. <laughs> they were teasing big things. Psych! James Collado, your reigning, defending, GTE Pro Class champion of the 24 Hours of Le Mans, and noted GP2 Series race winner and championship contender and Force India test driver. It's like it's 2013 all over again. Evans Ooh. and Collado and Jaguar. Who expected this Ooh. former Force India driver to take the seat? <laughs> if you like Pina Collado. 
Very good. I I do wonder though, how does Sam Bird feel about this? Because he said Formula E and WC calendar clashes were the reason he had to give up his WC gig. And why he's only doing Formula E now. Do you think that they've alleviated so many of the calendar clashes that it made it work for Collado to do both? Yeah, because there's there's only one clash left, and there's still some there's still some murmurs going around that that race might be moved, so it won't clash with Sebring anymore. <sighs> Sam Bird's just got to be thinking, "Damn, I should have waited God a bit to damn. renew that contract." <laughs> <laughs> um. Also, very great to have Simona de Silvestro back in Formula E as one of Porsche Formula E's two test drivers. Hey. Welcome to the family, Simona. I'd love to see her back in a race seat, but it is great to have her back in the paddock regardless. And, of course, we'll get to see her uh, a couple weeks from now at the Bathurst 1000, provided we haven't all passed out from alcohol poisoning, right, Cam? (laughs) My liver is quaking with anticipation. World Superbikes. Oh, we mentioned boy. It. Yeah, silly season had kicked off already with Alvaro Bautista going to Honda. We now have other dominoes falling into place, including the long-awaited switch of the aforementioned newly crowned race winner Top Rack Razgatiaglu going to the factory Yamaha racing team to partner Michael Vandermark. That is a really good lineup. It's so good that it's pushed Alex Lowe's out and he's sent to fall all the way upward to be back at Kawasaki alongside Jonathan Ray to replace Leon Haslam. (laughs) (laughs) He'll gladly take that L and fall upwards. Yeah. Of course, that kind of leaves Haslam, who, as we found out, is actually pretty old. Yeah, much older than I had realized. I, I could have sworn he was like in his late twenties still. Oh no, he's like thirty six. I I don't know how this happens. Yeah, um, looks like Haslam. His options are basically go to one of the lower teams on the grid, or hang it up, or go back to British Superbikes. Yeah, and you know that whole thing about uh, Honda being fucking awful in World Superbike and not updating yeah. the Fireblade in eleven years in any meaningful way. Well, well, let's go to our resident tech correspondent and noted Honda fan, Cam Buckley, for the latest on, oh God, it moves? Yeah. <laughs> um, current rumors point to the next CBR 1000RR Fireblade being revealed at the Tokyo Motor Show. And a patent by Honda has potentially revealed that they are having active aerodynamics in the fairing on a motorcycle. Holy shit. We had a very good discussion about how expensive World Superbikes could get. Yeah, Um, 19 late 90s FIA GT1 called. They want their homologation specials back. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, for Honda, they will gladly sink and invest as much money as they possibly can to turn that into a winning team with Alvaro Bautista and we believe Takumi Takahashi. Honda is a 130 billion with a B euro company. They will spend that money. I'm surprised they hadn't done that sooner. Yeah. And what with do- the current rumors behind the next 
Yamaha R1. Of course, Ducati having more or less a homologation special $40,000 motorcycle. Good God, that's a lot in motorcycle money, by the way. Yeah. And Honda now building an active aero bike, which is also supposedly going to well smash the 200 horsepower barrier. Oh boy, it's getting spicy. Too spicy. <laughs> it really is. I also, uh, I love this point about, uh, there, there is the world superbike element, but keep in mind as well, Kawasaki got an upgrade on Haslam, and they just happened to weaken Yamaha's Suzuka 8-hour team into the bargain. That's a win-win for Kawasaki in that race, but oh, I wouldn't necessarily discount Top Rack's impact in either one of those events. Not to mention if Honda rocks up to Suzuka next year with a bike with moving wings and the fucking fairing. <laughs> On a Honda own track. They might just open the dev. <laughs> oh, God. Um, couple more items to get through first. Um, in case you missed it, Super Formula at Okayama, the second to last race of the championship for the first time, in addition to it being streamed on Let's Go Racing and Motorsport.tv, it's also carried on Red Bull TV, who had live coverage of qualifying as the field tried to chase Ayrton Senna's overall lap record around the Okayama International Circuit. Didn't quite get there, about two and a half seconds short. But what excitement and drama qualifying lacked, comparatively speaking, with the record chase, oh boy, made more of the up for it in the race. Um, RJ, would you like to, uh, or we can wait. We can wait for you to roast the shit out of me for all of our listeners. Um, this was a very strange race, and with both Naoki Yamamoto and Nick Cassidy both qualified deep in the field, and this was essentially Ryo Hirakawa's race to win from pole position until we got an early safety car, um, which, which caused something very interesting to happen strategically. Um, for this race and starting this round, teams had to wait until at least 10 laps before their compulsory fuel and four tire change pit stop. That was in response to teams discarding their trash ass medium tires after just one lap and running the entire race on softs. Yes, of course, in Super Formula, there are two tire compounds, but the problem is that the softs are too good. They are yeah. the better part of two seconds a lap quicker than the mediums for really no gain or no loss on degradation. They will run just, the whole race. SMH, I just want Bridgestone back. But yeah, we saw out of that, that effectively compromised any chance Rio Hirakawa had of taking the victory because he was one of the guys that had yet to pit and his strategy was designed on running as long as he can and opening up as much of a gap as he can. Now, in that strategy, Naoki Yamamoto started the race on soft tires. He pitted on lap 10 to go on the mediums, and then came in the very next lap, still under safety car, and got off the mediums onto the soft tires. He's now used both compounds. The only problem was, being stuck in traffic, he was not making up a lot of time with his soft tires. And in fact, it was Nick Cassidy, who had yet to stop him, was starting the race on soft tires, who was getting much more out of his U set than Yamamoto was on his newer set. And at that point, there was an interesting chase going along with 30-second time delta, and you're thinking, guys, Yamamoto may not come out ahead of Cassidy once Cassidy makes his stop. And it was at this point, as we were watching the race, that Cam was very concerned 
that Naoki Yamamoto was going to throw away his chance at his third Super Formula Championship. And I said, Nick Cassidy has this championship locked up. Change my mind. Well... Less than 10 minutes to go in the race, with Cassidy and Kamui Kobayashi battling for position into oh, the... This, this needs some context, though. Cassidy's hmm. only gotten a couple laps out on the, the compulsory medium tires. Kobayashi, because he was on a compromise strategy as well, he's on the freshest softs in the field. Yeah, so Kamui is hauling ass. And again, he is on the cusp of the championship fight himself. Yeah. Well, he puts a move on Cassidy, who's still struggling to warm up his tires. Mm -hmm. Cassidy just shoots the gap, trying way too hard to stave off a move that was always going to happen. Launches himself over a curb, and oh my god, he's stuck, facing backwards, and Yamamoto drives right on by. And that to me, could have been the turning point in the championship right there as he's spun out in a cloud of dust as Yamamoto drives on through again. He was outside the points when this happened. It was expected to be Cassidy extending his lead going into Suzuka, and what was now a one-point lead for Cassidy now turns into a one-point lead for Yamamoto, who went on to finish seventh because on the final lap of the race, Kamui Kobayashi got spun out after he hit Alex Palu. Oh. And that turned what would have been a slam dunk top five finish into a non-finish. And Kamoe Kobayashi was very displeased after the race with uh, yeah. race direction because, as far as I know, there was no penalty awarded. And yeah. apparently Palu just kind of ran him over. Oh, and what those points would have done, because Kobayashi's still mathematically eligible for the title, but he essentially needs to win the last race of the season to have any shot at the title. Um, But a great day for Kente Yamashita, who becomes the third different driver to take his first win this season in as many races. This is already going into his first six hours of Fuji, and with him already holding the lead in GT500 points. Yeah, he was the first driver on who had, was able to get onto softs with that early safety car. And he had enough pace on those softs and kept the softs going long enough that when the leaders who weren't able to pit during the safety car pitted, he was able to come out well clear of them. His first career win, and I don't think it's going to be his last either. Again, he is a driver that is high on Toyota's radar. Um, we also had... Uh, I believe it was, uh, yeah, just looking over the results here. It's, uh, yeah, so Kenta Yamashita finishes first ahead of his Toyota stablemate Kazuki Nakajima second. Harrison Nui with his first points in third. So Kenta, then son of Satoru, then son of Adrian in third. Alex Palu fourth, nephew of Gerhard Lucasauer in fifth. And how about Patricio Award with his first points after bogging down on the grid and finishing sixth? He was last. He was last on lap one. Suffice to say, Red Bull picked a good one. Don't you dare throw him away. Yamamoto in seventh and Kazuya Oshima rounding out the points coming from the back row to finishing in eighth. So this is how the championship standings look. Going into the final round, that's the Jaff Grand Prix at Suzuka Circuit. 
Naoki Yamamoto on 29 points has a one-point advantage to Nick Cassidy on 28th, Alex Pelu on 25 points, Kenta Yamashita on 21, and Kamui Kobayashi on 19. In this race, there are three bonus points available for taking the win. So it's 13 for a win, 8 for second, then 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, and 1 with a bonus point on tap for pole position. And while it's worth noting that Naoki Yamamoto, well, this has been his stomping ground for a long time. Yeah, Cassidy really could have used those points. Yeah, however, Cassidy won the race here at the start of the year, and as Yamamoto admitted himself, he ain't winning this title if he keeps driving like this. Yeah, because he was set to go into his third consecutive weekend without any points. So yeah, if you get a chance, be it on Let's Go Racing, be it on Red Bull TV, uh, maybe on Motorsport TV if you got the cash for it, I don't know. Um, go watch the Jaff Grand Prix at Suzuka. It is a good time. And if it's anything like the last time these SF19 raced at Suzuka, oh boy, it's going to be fun. <laughs> there is just one last thing I want to discuss before we head on out of here. Um, because we've covered a lot. Um, and one thing that we, we've all been rooting for Robert Wicken's recovery. Um, so it was great to see that him and Carly Woods finally tied the knot and got married this weekend. Um, but we have already seen Robert Wickens make good on a promise that he made when his recovery process started. He wanted to be able to dance at his wedding with Carly. Boy, he got up out of his chair and he did that dance. A tough son of a bitch did it. There is only one. Now make it two. Congratulations, Robert and Carly. Absolute best of luck to you moving forward. And again, Robert, we wish you continued success in your recovery. And we hope you will be back racing the car sometime soon. But even if not, this is a great life moment for you. And we're all so very proud of you. And with that, I think that's the perfect way to send us off on this 215th episode of Motorsport 101. Um, Again, we'll be back next week to talk about... God, we've... I got a whole lot to talk about. We've got a MotoGP to talk about and the coronation of Mark Marquez as your eight-time champion of the world. Yeah, um, MotoGP discussion. Do we really need to discuss it? Yeah, <laughs> all he's got to do is finish ahead of Davizioso and the title is his. Although I will say, if the race is as entertaining as it was last time out, you might want to brew yourself a cup of coffee and watch this Thai Grand Prix at Chang International Circuit in Buri Ram, Thailand. Worth noting that this year, Mark Marquez has finished first, second, and that one technical DNF in Austin. Yeah, the one where he kind of just half fell, but the bike kind of half broke too. So, you know, that's... It's a better season than 2014. He has more we, points. Oh, King, we've also got the DTM finale. Yes, the DTM finale. With uh, added Super think, GT. It's Motorsport yes. 101 Civil War. <laughs> oh, God. Well, should we come up with a bet uh, for this? Ooh, I think we should wait for the Dream Race. Ooh, uh, better yeah. idea. Because uh, isn't uh, BMW bringing a certain someone yeah. to the Dream yeah, Race? Yeah, they're bringing... Uh, well, today they announced Kamui Kobayashi... And before that, they announced motherfucking four-time Paralympic gold medalist Alex Zanardi. <laughs> who, again, is just using this to scout for those 2020 Olympics, which just so happen to be 
held in the road cycling section at Fuji Speedway. Cue your um, BMW-Toyota partnership jokes now. We also have WRC, Rally Great Britain. If you have Red Bull TV, definitely watch the highlights. That's going to be a good championship and NASCAR at Dover. And I believe that covers it. Places you can find us one more time. We are on YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. We're on Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101. And if you wish to follow us personally, you can, if you so choose to do so, at Harrison101HD, at Ryan Eric King, at RJ O'Connell, and at CBuckley917. Um, and of course, our hub for everything, Motorsport101.com. And if you wish to back us financially, you can at Patreon.com forward slash Motorsport101. Thank you to... All of our listeners who've tuned in live, you can be a patron and listen to the show just as Steve and James and Vikesh and my boyfriend and Lewis are doing right now for just $5 a month. What are you waiting for? Do it! Help Do us it. rebuild the church that's been burned down. <laughs> for Cam Buckley, Ryan King, and Andre Harrison, I'm RJ O'Connell. Thank you so much for listening. Catch you next time. Later, y'all. Bye. Till next time.